Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. Our guest for this special episode of Bright Now is Michael Horn, who was nice enough to talk to us about his new book, Choosing College, earlier this season. Michael is one of the best sources around on the topic of disruptive innovation, and he very generously agreed to record this extra bit of conversation about that concept. Michael, welcome back. Thanks so much for uh, having me again. You know I'm a creativity guy, so the idea of disruptive innovation has always fascinated me. Um, I love it because it's part sort of a cognitive lens, it's part a sociological lens, it's, it, it's, it's a 10,000-foot take on innovation and creativity. It's a 30,000-foot take. But for our listeners who, who aren't that familiar with it, like how would you describe disruptive innovation? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is disruptive innovation. Don't believe what you read about it in the popular press uh, <laughs> because it has been so bastardized and used to justify whatever an entrepreneur or company wants to do. Uh, but really, it's a theory. In some ways, it's a game theory, right? A, a, a variation of game theory to basically say, if I take this action, what is my uh, an incumbent in a space likely to do? And, and essentially, it describes a process whereby uh, new innovations enter the market that are simpler, more affordable, more accessible and convenient than the traditional products and services that dominate a sector. And they start themselves among non-consumers, people who can't afford those uh, existing products and services. And then they get better and better over time, such that they actually transform a marketplace as people flock out to this thing that's improving, that's initially not good enough, uh, because they're delighted with this new value proposition with an improving product and service. And so that's sort of how transformation occurs uh, in industry after industry, is this process of disruptive innovation not an event, as uh, people mm. often uh, describe it. <laughs> so can you give us uh, sort of like a general business example and then an education example? Yeah, absolutely. So the, a general uh, business example, just in the world of computers, uh, the personal computer was disruptive relative to the mainframe and many computers that preceded them. So most people couldn't afford computers back in the uh, mid-1970s and before. Computers at that time cost at least a quarter million dollars to own. Uh, they were extremely complicated to operate. Most of us were non-consumers. The personal computer comes along, famously the Apple in, in the late 1970s, and it starts as a toy for hobbyists and, and then children uh, who can't afford these big machines for, uh, you know, costs a couple thousand bucks. Super primitive initially, can't do a lot of computations and calculations, but boy, it gets better year over year over year. And by 1989, so 12 or 13 years later, it's good enough that the volume in the mini and mainframe computer markets just collapse as people flock out to the personal computer, which is much simpler, more affordable, more convenient, more accessible, and that's how we got ubiquity in computing. So, that, so that's an example in the business world. Uh, in education, uh, we argue that in, until really online learning appeared, we hadn't seen disruptive innovation uh, since arguably the chalkboard uh, hmm. had appeared uh, m many, many, many centuries bef before, or uh, e even maybe a better example, the textbook um, had had, uh, had appeared. And 
online learning essentially allows people that can't come to a campus or can't access a certain course in the k twelve setting to start to have access to learning opportunities. and it's not just video tv, right? it's it's still interactive in its own through through a variety of mechanisms and it started as super primitive, has gotten better and better and better. it's not always, but when paired with the right business model, it's more affordable than many forms of education. it's getting better and better and more and more students are doing it. and what's interesting in post-secondary education is that over a third of students now have at least one online course as part of their post-secondary experience. Mm. And 15% now are full-time uh, online. And that number has been growing year over year over year, even as the number of students writ large in post-secondary accredited programs has been shrinking. Has been going down. I wonder if, given the example that you just shared, I think back to my own children and how, like, uh, one's just started college, one is about to enter high school next year, and even that gap between them, uh, which is only what five years, their comfort level with interacting in uh, learning environments online is significantly different. And they're both much more comfortable at, than an old guy like me is, right? So I like how you talk about disruptive innovation as, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I interpreted it when you described it as a process, not this event that happens. So it wasn't mm-hmm. um, the Macintosh ad during the 1984 Super Bowl, and then everything changed the next morning, which is how we talk about it, right? That's totally. Crazy. That's not at all how that happened. It took it took really almost a generation, right? Probably about 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 half a generation. But then as younger people came along and had a greater facility with technology, all of a sudden it took off. So is that is that is that a fair way to think about it? Sort of process versus versus event? One thousand percent. And if you read the business examples in Clay's book, a lot of them take like 40, 50 years for the transformation to occur. Like the disruption of the steel industry is literally like a 35 or 40 year process, right? Before someone would call it disruption, even though it started, uh, of course, in the 50s and 60s. And so uh, I think a lot of people point at education and they're like, oh, they're saying online learning is potentially disruptive, but it hasn't changed everything yet. And it's like, yeah, education's even slower moving. We'll give you that. And so it's going to be at least a generation until we see a fuller transformation. And we can't even imagine, like, you know, as uh, strong as the theory is, I think, in helping guide what will probably happen in the future, we can't imagine all the different twists and turns these things will take over time. Uh, my own gut has become that sort of these uh, blended experiences where you take technology of online learning. And much as online retail, it's totally disrupted department stores, right, over the last many years. But now it's so interesting. Bonobos, Warby Parker, Amazon, they're creating bricks and mortar facilities. Right, they don't look right. like Macy's, but that's sort of their upmarket improvement, right? And I think the same thing is going to be true of online learning and education. That It's not going to look like your full campus, but, you know, it'll sort of be like your WeWork or I guess that's a bad analogy these days, but, you know, your, co- <laughs> your, your co-working type space that allows you to have community, allows you to interact with people, allows you to do projects with people, allows you to work with employers maybe even uh, and touch base. But a lot of the learning will occur online still. And so I think these blended experiences uh, is going to be the way online learning, quote unquote, gets better. 
but it's going to be a long process. It's not going to be an overnight thing, and I don't think we should expect it to be so. You uh, reminded me of a very personal example that happened to me last month. I was meeting with an education group, uh, which I will not name, um, and uh, someone said, well, you know, we're doing this new initiative. It's going to be disruptive, disruptive innovation, which made my ears perk up. Uh, But then they they had this event perspective, and I couldn't figure out the language to use to help them understand that, well, no, if we do this, like the first mover with disruptive innovation is not necessarily the person who's going to be immediately successful, right? And mm-hmm. that was kind of lost, I think, in this group's discussion. It was, well, no, 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 no. We're doing something cutting edge. It's going to be super, super disruptive, and we're going to benefit from it. And I thought, well, no, it's it's a longer term process than that. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, what's interesting about disruptive innovation is it's not a theory of success. It's a theory of competition, right? That Mm. if we make this step, that the existing system or incumbents will be motivated to ignore us and give us more and more room so that so that we can improve this, right, and get better and better and better and see this transformation over time. But it's not a theory of success. I think the jobs to be done work that we obviously talked about in the last time I was on your podcast uh, from choosing college, that's much more a theory of success. So we've built this cool thing that we think is positioned disruptively Will people actually want to use it? Will they be motivated to pull it into their lives? Disruption doesn't answer that question. And what's actually very interesting, if you look at the innovator's dilemma, where Clay uh, really sort of uh, deconstructed this uh, phenomenon initially, Clay Christensen, that is, uh, what he saw was that if you took a disruptive strategy, entrants were uh, successful 36% of the time in his research. Hmm. If you took a what we would call a sustaining strategy or, or, or going head on against the incumbents, you were successful 6% of the time. <laughs> so essentially, disruption increased your rate of success sixfold, which is humongous, right? right. Uh, but it doesn't say sustaining strategy is always wrong. It's just going to be super capital intensive because you're fighting a system with a lot of resources and in, in, in education charter schools uh, that I would consider not disruptive. Uh, you know, take note, there's a reason why you're spending a lot of money to try to make progress. Um, And, uh, you know, similarly, disruption wasn't by itself successful, it was helpful, but you had to do a lot of other things that you have to execute on uh, to to get it right. And jobs to be done is obviously a big piece of that. But Mm -hmm. operations, uh, sustained business model, all those things are important too. To sort of close this up here, if you were speaking to some bright students, many are going to be listening to this, what's one takeaway about disruptive innovation that you think they should keep in mind as they move through uh, the school systems and then head out into the workforce? Yeah, don't dismiss an innovation because it's primitive or not as good initially. That's actually the hallmark of something that can be disruptive and serve people that don't have access to what you have today. And so in many ways, that's the opportunity, right? To take something Mm. that's fundamentally lower cost, simpler and convenient. And yeah, it's not as good, but it's better than the alternative, nothing at all. I'll give you a really quick example that I'm super excited about, which is I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Imagine Worldwide. We're doing randomized controlled trials right now in developing countries where over 60 million students do not have access to primary school, period. Mm. And so the question we're testing is, can you teach six, seven, eight-year-olds to become uh, basic literacy and basic numeracy skills through a tablet in the absence of school? And 
the you know and, and everyone in the United States would be absolutely right to point out that's not nearly as good as having a teacher in person in the United States. Right. But you know what? That's not the reality they have. And so I, I would say, particularly for bright students, uh, understand perspective and and that. Uh, you know, actually something being primitive could be an advantage if you can deploy it in the right way. My final question for you, what advice would you give about disruptive innovation to parents? <laughs> That's a really interesting one because we always want the best for our students, right? Right. Uh, so uh, I think the, the question is context, right? So in a given situation, is this what's right for your students? So if I'm a parent thinking about you know, maybe 15 years ago, I was going to go into the first full-time virtual school environment, right? Or I was going to go, my, my child says, I want to go to Western Governors University. I don't want to go to State U, you know, or whatever it is. Understand that in the context of their current situation and the motivations of what they're trying to do, not sort of in a blanket way against the traditional metrics that we've always used, because that could be the right way to get ahead. I mean, not too far from you in Washington, D.C., there's a group called the Smartly Institute that is pioneering the first essentially mobile learning MBA. Uh, and it is a very cool, instructionally rich uh, program. Uh, and it but it, it's, it's you know, it's not a Harvard uh, MBA by any stretch of the imagination at this point. Right. And if your student, if your child, for example, is in the position where their working rate and maybe they want to get the MBA on the side while they continue to work because they really want a certain set of skills. Uh, the smartly thing that is like, you know, infinitely more affordable than HBS might be the right decision. But if you're really looking for that networking experience and to be in a group of people and take the two years off, then maybe the Harvard MBA would be better. And so mm -hmm. context gives meaning and think about disruptions through that context question. Our guest today for this special bonus episode has been Michael Horn. He's a senior partner at Entangled Solutions, and he's also the co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. And uh, I think you're our first two-time guest. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Michael. Well, frankly, I'm honored and just uh, excited about the continued work you all do and uh, appreciative to be part of it. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Pucker, Tracy Guerin, and Tricia Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.